I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. What do we talk about when we talk about sustainable finance? Why is it important? And what's the end game we're working towards? The recognition that the world's resources is finite isn't a controversial one. Yet, our current economic system treats it so in the pursuit of perpetual growth. And so the question is, how can we design a better system that supports more inclusive growth in a much less resource and carbon-intensive manner? The International Energy Agency, for example, estimates that $75 trillion in cumulative investment is needed to fund renewable and low-carbon technologies, as well as energy efficiency efforts to keep global temperature rises below 2 degrees Celsius. The European Commission plans to invest as much as 3 trillion euros, or 100 billion euros annually, towards the goal of making Europe the first carbon-neutral continent by 2050. All this is to say that public finances won't cover all these costs. Governments are going to weigh heavily on the private sector, steering capital towards financing projects like the European Green Deal. After all, of that 3 trillion euro figure I just mentioned, only 1 trillion euros would come from the EU budget. The remaining 2 trillion would come from member states, the European Investment Bank, and the private sector. So it's going to be critical to understand how regulators and legislative bodies like the European Commission define and formalize sustainable investment approaches and frameworks. It's also why I'm so excited to have our next guest, Arlene McCarthy, on the show. She's one of my favorite people to listen to when it comes to the intersection of policy, politics, and the financial system. We talk about the EU sustainable finance agenda, the momentum driving convergence behind ESG standards, and why expectations will only get more rigorous in this area going forward. Arlene is executive director of AMC Strategy, a special advisor to the chairman of Bloomberg, and was a member of the European Commission High-Level Expert Group on Sustainable Finance. During her 20 years as a member of the European Parliament, she chaired the Internal Market Committee and was vice chair of the Economic Committee and Monetary Affairs Committee. She was named one of the top 100 influential women in European finance in 2010, 2011, and 2012, as well as MEP of the Year in 2014 for her work in financial services. She was also awarded an OBE in the Queen's 2015 New Year's Honours List for Parliamentary and Political Services. Welcome to the show, Arlene. It's really great to have you here kicking off the new year. Yes, happy new year to you, Jason, and uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. Great. So I want to start off with your personal arc. It's really, really interesting. In fact, I want to go way back when you were a lecturer on the academic side and you first started thinking about politics, working with the European Parliament. Um, sort of walk me through how that evolved and your interest in politics. Well, I guess it goes back to my time as a young girl growing up in Northern Ireland my father used to take us every week to the local library and once I'd exhausted the fiction books on the shelves, I, at the age of 12, I moved on to reading political biographies. And so I became very interested in politics in general, but not in the politics of Northern Ireland, interestingly. I really was not interested in the conflict uh, issues. But I grew up as a child of parents uh, of mixed religion. So you know, I was very conscious of sectarianism and conflict, having a Catholic father and a Protestant mother. But interestingly, when I was elected to the European Parliament, 
My first job, in fact, was to work very closely with the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland on the Northern Ireland Peace Programme. So, in fact, I got to work very closely uh, following the Good Friday Agreement on delivering investment, new finance for, I guess, a, a new Northern Ireland. And again, this has been the backdrop of, like you said, the Irish conflict, as well as the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Yes, I studied politics at university with languages. I spent time in Berlin. I then worked towards doing a a PhD, which was in East-West politics. I uh, lectured there and worked on security and defense policy. And then, of course, uh, the Berlin Wall fell. So my political uh, PhD rapidly became history. At that time, I was very active campaigning in politics and I was active in my party. I I had an internship with the European Parliament and during that internship, I actually worked on the German reunification process. So, you know, I think, Jason, I'm really fortunate not just to have a, a front row seat in the making of history, but actually to be a part of the policymaking process and, and the impact that had on, on people and communities. I want to come back to some of the work you did during those 20 years. But, you know, after 20 years of, of working as an MEP, then you decided to go into the private sector. How did you think about making that choice to suddenly go into that? And uh, what informed you? Well, I was elected very young at 33, and I felt really that I'd been an academic before that. I then worked, obviously, as a public servant. I consider politics to be public service. And I felt that if I didn't change then and do something else, I probably wouldn't do something different. So I was attracted by the private sector. I'd also done probably every job I could do in the European Parliament. So I'd been a chair of the Internal Market Committee. The last five years, I worked, obviously, on the fallout on the legislation to deal with the fallout of the financial crisis. That was a very heavy session. I think we did around 44 pieces of legislation in five years uh, in an attempt to try and restore trust and confidence in the financial system. And so I felt probably it was time for a change. And I felt that, you know, the experience and insights I got as a policymaker were something that I'd like to see if they could translate into working in the private sector in supporting implementation of legislation and supporting policy development in connecting, I guess, the private sector, particularly in the financial area, closer to the policymaking process. You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about sustainable finance. Did that path seem very clear to you early on in your career when you started looking at sort of transparency or working on legislation around banker bonuses and the cap on that? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, Many of us, and I'm talking about cross-national, cross-party, those of us that worked on the Economic and Financial Committee in those critical five years, felt that there had been a, a substantial market failure. We felt that actually the financial sector had, in a sense, prioritized its own interests. It had put profit probably before public good. And we felt that it had been over-deregulated, in fact, that there was too much space really to innovate in a way that was not in the interest of the real economy. And so I think then already we were thinking the key thing we really need to deliver here is more transparency in the system, is to open up markets in a way that investors can understand better where the risks are, where the opportunities are. And so probably one of my first big pieces of legislation that really was a good training ground for that was I worked on the accounting legislation and particularly on transparency and particularly around transparency with the oil, gas, logging and mining industries. And there the key objective we were trying to achieve was to get those companies to report on their interests and the payments they were making to foreign countries. And why was that important? It was important because... 
you know, I have a very strong sense of social justice as well from my political background. And if you look at those natural resources, those natural resources don't belong to companies. They belong to the people in those countries. And in a sense, when a country or a government sells an oil block to a global oil company, they're selling their countries and their people's natural resources. And I think what we felt was that it's a very clear case that you then saw that a corrupt government could effectively take that money, and in fact that did happen in Nigeria, and put that money into a private personal bank account in Switzerland, make money from that, yet in that community or in that region where that oil refinery was situated, you had uh, communities actually who had probably eight euros per person for clean water, for health, for education, for schooling. And so we felt there was a right for those communities to know what their government was getting as investments so that they could lobby their governments to get more money to develop their own communities. So for me, that transparency is a disinfectant, I think. It's a, it sheds light if we can inculcate a sense of a culture of transparency and openness, uh, not just in the financial sector, in all industries, that that will be better for society and better for the economy. When you started looking at this 10 plus years ago, it sounds like you were thinking about it again in sort of the context of transparency and now to see it over the last decade plus evolve into sustainable finance, better standards around environmental, social and governance, including reporting standards. Was there a sense of how things like transparency and anti-corruption would become more formalized in frameworks like they have today back then? Yes, well, I think that in politics, our policymaking, where industry will make a big change, is when they're under pressure. And I think everybody felt under pressure from investors, from NGOs, from communities who were calling for more transparency. But also, I, this also coincided with you know the Paris Agreement in the at the UN COP in 2015. Countries signed up to actually deliver on the climate agreement. And I think the concept here was that we needed to do more, really, actually, to achieve that. And that the financial sector was really well placed to do that because you need to finance green, you need to finance sustainable investments. And if you can mobilize global capital markets and, and with enormous potential, I mean, at the moment, I'm very excited about the initiative that President Macron launched with the sovereign wealth funds during the One Planet Summit, uh, with now asset managers joining that. I mean, together, they have under management $18 trillion worth of assets. If you can mobilize that towards sustainable investments, not just in Europe, but globally, and in those countries that are lagging behind, you have the power to make an enormous impact at a time, I believe, when the climate crisis you know, is causing major catastrophe. We've seen insurance companies have to deal with something like $470 billion worth of damages, droughts, forest fires, we see that constantly in the news. And so, you know, I, I think it's the financial sector has a responsibility, but also has the capacity to step up in this space and, and do more. I'm wondering about how you're able to bridge maybe sort of a, a perspective about the financial industry and their ability to self-regulate in different contexts. So, for instance, when you chaired the European Parliament's Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee and you oversaw the LIBOR manipulation, um, you'd said once, the financial sector cannot be trusted to self-regulate. Fines have proved ineffective and have not changed the culture in the banking industry. And you were absolutely right. But how do you think about that ability to self-regulate when it comes to something like sustainable finance? 
Perhaps it's best for me to answer that in a way that I, I don't believe that regulation is the silver bullet. I don't believe that regulation can solve all the problems. And particularly not today in an environment where it's fast moving, where technology is driving a lot of change. And I don't think that regulation can keep up with that. But I think that regulation is needed sometimes as a framework to pursue or promote the industry to do better. I felt that I was always willing to look at self-regulation. I always felt that when I had discussions with industry lobbyists, that if they could bring us the solutions, if they could bring us the solutions, if they could regulate. Here's a really good example. The mobile phone roaming charges, which I also legislated on in the European Parliament, that came as consumers came to us saying, look, you know, we're an internal market. Why, when I go to the Netherlands or Germany, am I paying a massive, I get a shock bill. I get a massive bill. I don't understand why I'm paying this amount of money. We went to the industry and said, hey, self-regulate. You know, we, we agree you have to make a profit. We don't think you should be charging consumers five times the cost. It actually costs you as an industry to make that call, to make that connection. And so uh, we said to them, self-regulate. And then they didn't because they felt that they didn't want to, and they felt that actually they wanted that money to invest in networks, and yes, there's an argument for that. And in the end, we said, okay, we will have to regulate, because you won't, but we'll also put in a sunset clause. And so in putting in a sunset clause, we're saying we'll give you regulation for two years, by which time you will change your culture internally and understand that it's in your interest to make these changes. Well, you know, I've left the parliament five years now and we still have a mobile phone roaming legislation because the industry didn't self-regulate. So we have to accept that in some cases that's not going to happen. But I think that regulation needs to constantly adapt and change. And we have to be able to bring forward regulation in a way that it is not crippling the industry, actually. That's important. That it's not undermining their ability to operate. Um, but we do need to have some frameworks. And I think sustainability is a, probably a good one. To come back to that, I think... Sustainable finance is something where, let's take one example of investors' duties. You know, if I went to get some advice on where I'd like to put some money as an investor, there was never an obligation to offer me a sustainable investment portfolio or green. And so I would have to work that out myself. And maybe I would and maybe I wouldn't. You could argue, the industry would argue, well, you should work that out yourself. But now we have an investor duty, which means at least you have to make an investor aware of that. And that's a good piece of legislation, in my view, because it's up to them. It's still the decision of the investor to take that option. But you should be able to make them aware that those options are out there. Because in the end, what we're trying to do is to finance the transition to a low-carbon economy. And if everybody plays a role in that, and investors want to do more of this, but if the industry responds to that, then we have a better chance to make progress faster. I want to unpack this a little bit more because it's really important. Can you talk a little bit about what the EU means when they're sort of talking about the sustainable finance package, you know, the end game that they're trying to get, as you mentioned, a low carbon economy? Yeah, I think that the, the sustainable finance agenda grew out of, I think, the overcoming the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, that we felt that we plugged a lot of those gaps, that we felt that we had restored trust and confidence. But then we had this major climate crisis. We had this major um, demand, I think, out there by the NGO community, by investors now to say, well, actually, we want to be more sustainable in how we conduct our business over the longer term. We don't want to be there for the short-term profit anymore. We need to look at long-term sustainability. And so I think the Commission felt that this was a project that was necessary, but it was also part of the bigger agenda that the European Commission has laid out to be the global leader, the EU is actually definitively 
placing itself as a global leader around, you know, the Green Deal, around having a Green Deal, around climate change, climate action. This is important, in a sense, for them to play a global role and to lead that global role and to set the standards. So I think that, you know, it's part of a broader agenda. It's part of a broader uh, agenda around Europe promoting the transition to a low-carbon economy because, in the end, we can't keep depleting our resources. You know, we've seen that in the sense that we're on a path, really, if we don't take action now, where we continue to continue to have global warming, we continue to exhaust our resources. That's not a sustainable future, you know, or a legacy to leave uh, future generations. I mean, if you had to be critical, because the stakes of what we're talking about in terms of climate risk are so much higher, what do you think the finance sector doesn't get about the policy agenda that the EU is trying to set out? What don't they fully appreciate? Well, I want to be fair to them because I think they've made enormous strides in terms of coming on board with this agenda. I think most companies now recognize that there is an investor demand for this. They recognize that it's not just responsible or ethical to do this, but actually it's good business because there is a potential to create enormous jobs in this space. So if they can engage in investment, sustainable investment, they have a capacity also to create jobs with that and also to make money from it. So hopefully they understand that there will be returns from it, business returns, financial returns, but it's not going to be a short-term hit. So I, I think they're much better than that. I think probably what they struggle with is is the short-termism. You know, in the end, when a board sits down to make decisions, It's the bottom line is about their profit margins. The bottom line is about keeping a company afloat. But I think the more that we can help them understand that it is good business. And that's why I think the, you know, the whole project that Mark Carney launched around the task force for climate related financial disclosures, that isn't just about the contribution to society or economy. It is fundamentally about the risk to financial stability. But it's also about getting a company to focus on their long-term development. And, you know, I can give you an example in Bloomberg. You know, we have the most sustainable office building here in London, 98% bream rating. We have the LED lights, we have recycled water. But the one big decision that Bloomberg made following the Hurricane Sandy was to move one of our data centers from downtown Manhattan to upstate New York because that had a phenomenal risk for the company in terms of profit. So we, you have to take those decisions in terms of addressing potential longer term risks related in this case to climate change. So that companies need to do that anyway. They need to think sustainably and they need to embed that into their procedures internally and they need to address those issues because it's good for their, for their business, it's good for shareholders and shareholders are demanding more of that. Let me turn the question around. What do you think that politicians don't necessarily fully appreciate when it comes to the finance sector? And I guess what's always interesting to me is sort of the definition of what sustainable finance means. And I know we're converging around one, but politicians are trying to solve for outcomes um, that are incredibly important, i.e. how do you fund green infrastructure, the European Green Deal, the just transition, whereas investors think of this more as process instead of outcomes. So they're, irrespective of the sector, they're thinking about the behaviors of companies from an ESG perspective. How do you reconcile those two? Well, politicians by definition are change makers. They are pushing for change. They're pushing for progress. You know, I think sometimes maybe they don't understand that the pace of change is not as fast as maybe they want it to be. So it's, you know, I always feel in politics, You have to be persistent, but you have to be patient. You have to recognize that change sometimes takes time. The problem 
in this situation with the current climate crisis, we don't have time. Mm. The IPPC has said in a report that we have probably 10 years in which to in which to deliver, which means that, you know, in the next five years of this European Parliament, that's half of that time. So they, they are going to push for rapid and fast progress and change. And so there maybe is a bit of a disconnect, but I think that it's about developing, I think, the tools and the solutions and the strategies to accelerate that change and to accelerate that transition. And so I think politicians need to be open to supporting industry to doing that, rather than, in some cases, developing a policy or making a policy demand that actually it cannot be implemented. And, you know, I I can see that now on the other side, from the private sector. I can see that sometimes... Uh, a policymaker will ask for something to be done within a year or they'll ask for um, or they'll demand that in terms of investors' duties, they'll say, well, if you're not, that every everyone has to do that within one year. And, you know, that sometimes is not deliverable in that time span. But the answer to that, in my view, is that, you know, is to keep the communication, is to keep collaborating. They, they keep to, need to keep talking to each other to talk about, you know, where the where the bottlenecks are what can be delivered in a short order. But for me also, I think the biggest change that we're, we're seeing in this space is data, is the availability of data. I mean, the more, then that's why transparency is so important. Transparency in reporting, for me, is the bottom of the pyramid of sustainable finance because the more data you can put out there, and of course you need to structure that. You need to have consistent, coherent reporting. You need to have comparable reporting. You need to be able to do that in a way that it's understandable for, for, for the investor community. But I think the more that we can in- inject the data piece into this, the, the faster it will go. Mm. I mean, let's talk about some of the progress that we're making um, on the positive side, which is the speed with which initiatives, whether they be investor initiatives or other industry groups or even political initiatives, you know, it's, it's happening faster and faster. You've obviously been involved with the HLEG and we're both involved with, with FRAG. And so the debate is much more pervasive and active now. Let's talk about maybe what you've learned, you know, out of this discussion. Um, there's a much more dynamic debate. I think what I've noticed in, in the time that I've been working on these issues is that it's, it's moved from a niche discussion to being more mainstream now. I mean, definitely I would say that sustainable finance is now being mainstream. You just have to look at the number of initiatives that are out there. We've seen here in London the launch of the Green Finance Institute. So this is a serious mainstream objective of the finance industry. And I think that in itself says a lot. But I think when it gets down to it, to the detail of it, um, it is about finding the tools, it is about finding the solutions to enable the industry to deliver on that. And that's going to take time. But I think that the more, as I said, we work together with the industry, the easier that will become. But I'm very excited about the potential here. I think the commission on the back of their sustainable finance action plan launched at the IMF in October. Executive Vice President Dombrovskis launched with a number of countries, with nine countries in total and their finance ministers, a new international sustainable finance platform. And that is so important because in the end, you know, capital is global. And if you want to get capital to move globally, then you need to have standards that are genuinely global. There's no point the EU developing their own green bond standard or developing a benchmark uh, or developing investor duties where then in other parts of the world there's something fundamentally different or there is nothing in that space. And that's good for countries like India. It's good for Mexico, for the Latin American continent, for Asia in general, that 
that you will attract more capital for your investments, green investments, if your standards are more or less, well, they're not going to be the same, but they should be interoperable. So you should have coherent and consistent standards. So there's a, I think there's an enormous potential here to turn this into a really mainstream global agenda. And I think that's happening. What's been the early reception from your perspective in terms of, of the work that HLEG has done and, and the EU taxonomy and, and the report on green bonds that have been produced over the last half year? For me, the HLEG report, the high-level expert group report on sustainable finance, which I, again, was privileged to be a part of, I mean, it was a very bold, a brave initiative. And what I felt was really astounding about that was that, and again, that's an indication of, of how sustainable finance is now becoming mainstream. Around that table for 18 months, people worked together from very different parts of the industry. Um, not the usual suspects talk about sustainable finance, but you had the banking sector, you had the exchanges, pension funds, everyone coming together with civil society to focus really on how, how can we make this change and how can we make, how can we mobilize capital markets in a way that they really support not just the sustainable finance agenda, but support the transition to a low carbon economy. So that I think has been phenomenal a major impact. It's also got other countries talking about it. So it has, it's had a ripple effect. Uh, in other countries. It's been, the UN has been working, UNEP's been working on this for a long time, but I think they've been able to use the fact that there is a a global um, coalition or alliance around this really to push faster and harder on that. So, you know, I I, I mean, I think where where will be the pinch points? Where will be the difficulties? It's turning that into pragmatic um, action. Mm -hmm. It's about how you get from the policy agenda, how you get from the policy agenda to the actual hard delivery on the ground. But I think that's happening. I think the taxonomy is the first step towards that. I think that's been a great success. But of course, the taxonomy in terms of how you define these standards, it's going to change over time. It's going to adapt. It's going to move forward because it's brand new. It's not been done before. And in that sense, it will need time to evolve and to go through a process of self-improvement. You know, the last 10 years has been really interesting because you've seen a lot of innovation in this sustainable finance space. I mean, one manifestation has been the sheer number of frameworks and standards that have come out. Something like more than 2,000 initiatives uh, reporting on non-financial data. I think there's more than 400 frameworks out there, which is incredible, but it's also, in a sense, maybe kind of distracting or burdensome. You know, how do you focus on the ones that matter the most, that make the biggest impact, like TCFD? It's a, it's a really important question because I think that the difficulty is that if you have too many standards, well, one, it's confusing for investors because they can't make sense of it. They're com- asking to compare apples and pears or they, and they can't really compare and contrast what's going on. I think that this is going to be a really big question for the non-financial reporting directive review. I think they're not going to have to, and they're beginning to look very seriously at where are the gaps. What they've also, I think, identified is that if you have too many standards, a company will choose the standards for reporting that give them the best light and make them look best in the, in the public domain. And, you know, that's not helpful to anyone, really. It's not helpful to the company in terms of internal development and progress. It's not helpful to investors who then only get a snapshot and the best side of a company. So I think that what we'll see is a move probably towards um, a core set of standards that can be compared and are more coherent. So I, And I think the Commission probably will end up at some point mandating that. So we may well move from a voluntary approach to a mandatory approach. And, and we're already seeing 
particularly around climate reporting, TCFD is a great framework for that because it's got a good governance structure. Um, it does enable a company to internalize and, and you can then compare between companies how that's working. But I think that needs to be done in a broader way. And, you know, I, I think that we've already seen the TCFD has been put into guidelines of the European corporate reporting legislation that came out in June this year. But I do think that we will see much more mandatory requirements. Is that a good thing? It's a good thing, again, if it is able to be modified when it needs to be. If regulation can keep pace with the change in the industry and with the private sector, then it's a good thing. You know, I think when we look at the whole climate reporting issue now, I mean, we, we see so many organizations now on board with that. For me, it's been a real game changer that the central banks now have identified that climate risk reporting is important for them and their portfolios. In that sense, we've now got the Network for Greening the Financial System set up again at the uh, One Planet Summit in 2017. But now over, I think, 50 central banks signed up to recognizing that climate reporting is important, not just for the private sector, but in their supervisory capacity. We also need to be looking at these issues. So that's why I think this is not an issue that's going away. This is definitely not going away. It's becoming more mainstream. And the more that supervisory bodies and regulatory authorities take up this issue about climate reporting and stress testing, the more it will be embedded generally in the structure. So I think the private sector needs to prepare for that. They need to be aware that this is coming down the track now. So the last question I want to finish with is uh, students are a big focus of this podcast. And I'm often asked the question about advice. And it's something that I like to ask the guests as well. And since you sit at a really interesting, uh, just fascinating nexus, this intersection between politics, policy, and sustainable finance, and given your time as a politician over 20 years, what advice would you give to students who are interested in some part of sustainable finance? Well, I, I would hesitate to give advice to students <laughs> because I think when I was a student, I probably didn't take advice that well, probably from former politicians or people in the business community. Um, look, I'm very optimistic about this generation. I really am optimistic. I think, firstly, millennials make up around 30% of the world population. So they really are going to drive change. But then if you look at their values, 87% of them believe that companies should address urgently environmental and social issues. Some of them I even are prepared to take a cut in a salary to go and work for a company that really is working on environment, social governance issues in a way that... So I, I, I think they have the right internal compass. They've got the right values. And, and as I said, I don't think that's just because of the Greta Thunberg phenomenon. I think in general, this is a generation that, and maybe that's my advice, who feel strongly about passion and purpose in what they do. And so I think for young people, you should follow your passion and purpose. I've had the extreme luck and fortune, you know, even though I started off with a background, you know, in Northern Ireland, which was very simple. I come from a very simple background, but I was able to follow my passion and purpose in life and to end up doing things where I hope I've made a difference and where I've been a policymaker. And so I would just advise them to continue what they're doing and to engage and to speak up and to be part of shaping their future because it is, because it is their future and it's their future that, that matters. Great. So it's been fascinating to unpack the objectives behind the EU's vision for sustainable finance, the efforts driving convergence around ESG and climate standards, and why expectations and approaches in this area will only get more rigorous going forward. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and views. 
I'm Jason Mitchell here today with Arlene McCarthy. Many thanks for joining us on a Sustainable Future podcast, and I hope you'll join us on our next episode. Thanks, Arlene. Thank you very much, Jason. I really enjoyed it. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.